The Greek god Helios stood before me, towering over the city, casting me in his shadow and blocking out the warm Greek sunlight. I am standing on the pier, reveling in the ocean breeze as it caresses my hair and touches my skin. Below me, I see my sandaled feet firmly planted on the stone that makes up the harbor of Rhodes. I am waiting for someone. The port is bustling with the sounds of the city, the energy of commerce, and the spoils of being perfectly positioned for the lucrative sea trade routes in the Mediterranean. I am proud to be a Rhodian. There is a sense that I belong to a special band of island people, Greek, but also something more, with a distinct culture and rich heritage. The sea sparkles before me, with the waves catching the light of the sun and bright glimmers that are quickly extinguished by cool depths of blue as ocean water slides over them, only to do it again and again. I can smell the brine as it floats past, and I can hear the telltale signs of the wonders that exist where the great expanses of water meet the permanence of stone and earth. Out on the horizon, I see a multitude of ships navigating through the waves, their masts standing high and their sails pregnant with the power of the wind. Some are heading to the safety of shore, others leaving for adventures beyond the horizon. I find myself excited at the thought of the lavish riches that may be headed to Rhodes, and also envious of the men heading out to sea, each voyage a new adventure, unwritten in history. I also think about their return home, and the joy of seeing loved ones, again after braving the dangers of the ocean. Ships, larger than I have ever seen before, are making their way toward the port. People watching them navigate onto shore are becoming talkative, as if the ships are bringing something supremely valuable to the Rhodian people. The warmth of the day is interrupted by a shiver. The breeze has turned cold, and I find myself suddenly afraid. My body is alerting me. Something has shifted, and I feel groundless. I look down at my feet to regain my footing on the stone, but that which was so solid a moment before has suddenly become unstable. The ground begins to move and I find myself disoriented as I try to remain standing. Clouds quickly pass across the sky, blocking out the sun. The water, serene just moments ago, becomes enraged, crashing against the pier. I am hit with a tremendous force as a deluge of water pushes me over. The water encompasses me, as if Colossus were wrapping his giant hand around me and tossing me into the ocean. The water is excruciatingly cold and I feel my muscles begin to tense as I fight for breaths after being knocked into the bay. I fight for air, coughing out salty water, only to have it thrown back into my lungs as I flail, helpless against the power of nature. I reach for anything, anything that I can hold on to. I reach out, struggling to see in the darkness, the brine burning my eyes. I find something. My hands desperately grasp the foot of Helios, the Colossus of Rhodes. He is the pillar of my people, the beacon that symbolized our resilience, our culture, our aspirations. I fight through the exhaustion of trying to breathe, to hold on to his foot as the sea, determined to pull me away, fights against me. I see the destruction. I glimpse quickly at my once magnificent city. I see fires tearing through the heart of Rhodes. Buildings are toppling, ships are being overturned in the port, and I hear the screaming. A thousand people crying out as the island is slowly swallowed up by the dark and cold vastness. I hold on to the Colossus in spite of my body wanting to let go. 
I place my faith in the tons of rock, the sentinel of the port and protector of the city. He is Helios, god of the sun, nurturer of life. As I steal my hold on him against the sea, I notice his head begin to move. I am captured by fear as I see his hand, the one that shields his face, slowly fall forward. His head, a symbol of strength, always looking up at the sun, falls downward. I feel my strength begin to wane as his head tilts downward and his stony eyes meeting mine. I knew instantly. My body gave way and I let go, surrendering to the thunder of the waves. The Colossus, looking down at me, his eyes piercing my soul, signaled that this was the end, his face severe and resigned. A moment and his eyes leave mine. His head continues to fall downward, separating from his body. I watch as the giant stone, once the head of a god, crashes into the shallow port before me. I see this last image of the statue crumbling before nature, before I am pulled under the water. I'm terrified. This episode is about the stuff of nightmares. Hello and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And Dr. David Morelos. So, Jessica. Yes. First, I wanted to thank all the people who had suggested doing an episode on dreams. Uh, we decided to call this episode The Stuff of Nightmares because we're a show about the dark side of psychology after all. So we wanted to start with nightmares, but also talk about them in the larger context of dreams in general. So, just a little bit for our fans, we wrestled a bit with choosing this episode. We have a list of topics that we've been pulling from, but in light of recent events, we wanted to touch on topics that were relevant to what's happening now. Talking about current events can be tricky, I think, if only because they can be so politicized, which is really something we want to avoid on our podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So what we've been trying to do is discuss topics that are peripheral, but yet relevant to the psychological experience of living through a pandemic. So one of the side topics that's come up in regard to the collective anxiety that we all seem to be living through right now is what it's done to our internal life. That being how we reflect, introspect, and what is going on with our very lively and unconscious minds. Well, and I think this is really a time of great introspection because people are spending a whole lot of time alone. Yeah, I definitely believe that. And, you know, that can be really, really productive, but it can also be frightening. Sure. So we wanted to talk a little bit about dreams and, by extension, nightmares as well. So would you like to start? Sure. So I know that you and I have very different thoughts about dreams. And I have to say, I think the theories that you are going to discuss 
are more fun and interesting. But I thought I would start out by talking a little bit about sleep in general. It's something that I really enjoy doing <laughs> and don't have enough time to do currently. Yeah. But I think most people are aware that we cycle through different stages of sleep throughout the night. There are actually five different stages, and uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about each stage. So stage one is that light sleep that we enter when we're just starting to doze off. Our brain waves during this stage of sleep are similar to what are seen when someone is awake, but very relaxed. So a lot of times when people are in this stage of sleep, they may not even think that they're sleeping. So if somebody comes and is like, oh, you were falling asleep. Oh, no, I wasn't. I was just resting my eyes. I've done that a lot. And you accuse me of doing that a lot, like every time we turn on a movie. <laughs> so people are often easily awoken during this stage, and it really only lasts a short time, maybe five to ten minutes. In this stage of sleep, People may sometimes report seeing images, but they're not really dreaming in the sense that we normally think of. It's not until stage two where we start to see some real dream activity. During stage two sleep, the person is in a deeper state of relaxation. People are harder to wake up during this period and their brain waves start to slow down. So the dreams that may occur in stage two are also different than what we typically think of when we talk about dreams, as they tend to be more auditory and emotional rather than having that strong visual component that we usually think about when we talk about dreams. A little interesting tidbit about stage two sleep is that there are certain patterns of brainwaves that occur, um, and these are called sleep spindles and K-complexes. Scientists think that sleep spindles, which are short bursts of high-frequency waves, play a role in learning and memory. And that's something that we're gonna be talking about kind of throughout the sleep cycle. And they believe these K-complexes, which are higher amplitude waves, may happen as a kind of bridge between lighter and deeper sleep. So stage two is still kind of like that, a little bit of that transition. Anyway, stages three and four are considered deep sleep. Our brains produce slow waves and people are very difficult to wake up when they're in these stages of sleep. So have you ever been woken up during like during deep sleep, David? So I guess that would feel like you wake up and you're really groggy. You're uh, disoriented. Yes, exactly. So it's like you really can't, you, you may not even know where you are, what's going on. Sometimes when people are awoken during the deep stages of sleep, they may not even remember waking up because they're just so groggy during that time. So an interesting story I read somewhere a while back that that was one of the reasons why they decided um, to limit the nap time or the breaks of airline pilots. Apparently what happened one time was uh, an airline pilot gave control to his co-pilot mm -hmm. during an overnight flight, went to go take a nap, fell asleep, and fell asleep for a long enough period of time where he entered into a deep form of sleep. So when he was woken, he went back uh, to the controls and promptly freaked out because he thought the planet Venus was another plane heading right toward them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he made an evasive maneuver. The plane dove, uh, woke everybody up, scared a lot of people from, from what I understand. And they had decided that what had happened was because of the stage of sleep that he had been woken in. He was completely disoriented, didn't really know what was going on, and made this judgment call based out of that type of thinking. I could totally see that. So, you know, with my job, I'm on call, 
And there have been times when I've gotten a call in the middle of the night when I was in a deep stage of sleep and I'm just completely disoriented and it takes me a while even to like figure out what is going on. Yeah, or where you are. Where I am, why somebody's calling me, who the person on the other end of the phone is. And there have even been times where I've had to be like, you know, give me 10, 15 minutes and let me call you back because I have to collect myself. So yeah. that's that's kind of characteristic of being awoken during those deep stages of sleep, stage three and four. So we also dream during these stages, but again, the dreams tend to be more emotional and auditory rather than richly visual in nature. They think deep sleep is associated with feeling physically rested, and they also think it contributes again to learning and memory. Research suggests that deep sleep is important for our immune systems to function optimally. And so that's something that, you know, in the middle of this pandemic is also something we want to be mindful of. So that brings us to stage five sleep, which we don't typically call stage five. We actually call that REM or rapid eye movement. This is a stage of sleep where our brain waves most closely resemble wakefulness and in which we have our most vivid dreams. Because this is typically the stage of sleep we experience just prior to waking, these are also the dreams we tend to remember. It's called REM sleep because while our bodies are paralyzed during this time, our eyes move back and forth rapidly underneath our eyelids. Interestingly, while we cycle through these stages approximately every 90 minutes while we're asleep, the amount of time we spend in each stage changes throughout the night. For instance, we tend to spend more time in deep sleep earlier in the night and more time in REM sleep closer to the time we wake up. Scientists also believe REM sleep is important for learning and memory, but there is a debate on exactly what function each stage of sleep serves, and there's been no conclusive evidence from research to say for sure this stage of sleep contributes to whatever. What we do know is that REM sleep is particularly important. When a person's REM sleep is interrupted, they will spend more time in REM sleep later on in what is called a REM rebound effect. In 1960, researcher Dr. William DeMent and his colleagues conducted a study where they woke subjects up just as they began dreaming during REM. Like that sounds like the worst experiment to be a participant in to me. So they were awoken several times during the night. They never really got to dream. They never got to enter REM sleep. So these subjects experienced increased irritability, anxiety, difficulty concentrating, coordination problems, increased appetite, and weight gain. Some of them even began having hallucinatory experiences. This suggested to Dr. DeMent that REM sleep was particularly important. However, other researchers have argued it is not as important as we once thought, and there has even been some research suggesting that interrupting REM sleep can help reduce depressive symptoms in some people with depression. So that's kind of interesting to me is that there are people that, depending on what's going on with them, can actually benefit from a little less sleep is what some of the research is suggesting. But no matter what, we know sleep is important and that we all dream. In fact, it's estimated a person who lives to age 70 will have had over 150,000 dreams in their lifetime. Wow. And while children are more likely to experience nightmares than adults, it is still estimated that each of us adults will experience around 25 nightmares a year. So if we break that down, that's roughly two nightmares a month. So would you say that you have that many nightmares, David? 
I would not call them nightmares. It's just like you said, and, and, and I wrote this as part of my notes too, that nightmares are generally more associated with children. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I'll get into that and why I think that is, but I think that for me, I would say that probably about twice a month I have an intense dream. Okay. Yeah, one that might, you know, leave me a little wonky the next morning, waking up or whatever, but I wouldn't call it a nightmare. So it might be more of an issue of kind of how we label these experiences, but it can also be that a lot of times we just don't remember our dreams. And so it just may be that we're having them and then we don't recall them after we wake up. Right. So why do we dream? As I said, I think the psychodynamic view on dream interpretation is probably a lot more fun. And I think you're going to kind of touch on some of that um, when you talk about your theories. But for me, my college and graduate education took a far more clinical or, or scientific view on dreams. Really, I recall learning the most about dreams in my neuropsychology classes. And the theory I wanted to discuss today is called the Activation Synthesis Model, which came out of Harvard in 1977. Basically, this theory states that our brains are quite active during sleep. So prior to this, they thought that our brains really were not doing anything very important while we slept. And so it was really after this time that they realized that our brain waves change and that there's a whole lot of activity going on in our brains as we sleep. So when we fall asleep, initially there's a lot of activity in the brainstem, which is the part of our brain that controls things like our heart and breathing rates, as well as coordination and balance. Next, there's a surge of activity in the limbic system, which is our emotional center in our brains. It contains the amygdala, which is considered the seat of emotion. It also contains the hippocampus, which is a structure that's primarily responsible for forming memories. Our brains then strive to make sense of all of this activity, as that's what brains like to do. And so the brain puts all of this information, the emotions coming out of the limbic system, the imagery, the sounds, and the sensations coming out of the brainstem into a narrative. According to this theory, the brain likely engages in this process to aid in learning and memory. So really, this theory's argument is that dreams, including nightmares, have no real special meaning. However, we know that nightmares are far more common in individuals who have experienced trauma and who go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And nightmares are one of the main criteria that we consider when assessing someone for PTSD. That's definitely something that we look for, we ask about. Right. So how do we explain that? So if we say that, you know, adults tend to not have nightmares and that dreams don't have any real meaning, you know, how do we explain these nightmares that are associated with PTSD? Okay. One thought is that since our brains are active and processing information during dreams, the brain may be trying to process the trauma or in other words, make sense of it and integrate it. There's a theory that it's the brain's attempt to reduce the emotional arousal associated with a traumatic memory by kind of replaying it over and over again during dreams. However, we know that these nightmares actually tend to do the opposite. You know, it doesn't really help to take the emotional intensity away. People tend to find them distressing over time. Right, definitely. So this is something that they're still researching. But really, I guess the neuropsychological view of nightmares are either that they have no real meaning and that they're just narratives put to random information or that they're ways that we process highly emotional information. 
But, I mean, that's pretty clinical. It's not very fun. I agree. I just have a hard time with that. I mean, I know that I tend to be the one who leans more towards the hard scientific explanation for things. But this whole theory just feels very incomplete to me. I don't doubt that dreams are necessary or that there's a lot of activity going on in our brains or even that the process of dreaming is imperative to our physical and mental health. But I have a hard time believing that our dreams are just random and that there's no meaning or that there's simply a way for our brains to consolidate information. Why would we have such a fascination with them if that's all that they were? Yeah, I'm in total agreement with you on that aspect, for sure. So that makes me curious about your view on dreams, because I have a feeling it's not this hard scientific view. No, certainly not. (laughs) If you know anything, have you met me? I know, I know, right? You know, I like the idea of working around nightmares as a category of dreams because nightmares tend to be much more intense and memorable than our every night run-of-the-mill type dreams. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, so this is something that we've been hearing a lot about lately, that people's dreams have been much more intense than normal, much more memorable, and in some cases much more disturbing. And that's really what separates a nightmare from a regular dream. Nightmares are typically associated more with children, as we mentioned earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. And that probably makes sense since we tend to have a lot of irrational fears and much more magical type thinking as kids that we grow out of as adults. Um, But I've worked with a number of inmates who have also had issues with nightmares associated with, again, as we mentioned earlier, different forms of trauma to the extent that it wakes them up in a sweat in the middle of the night and bothers them enough that they want to process their dreams by talking about them with me. So there is a lot of obvious stuff that comes up when it comes to nightmares. This includes things like people tend to have nightmares when they are dealing with a lot of stress in their lives. I mean, we've all heard that one, right? Oh, yeah. And I can relate to that. I feel like I have more intense dreams, if we want to call them nightmares, when there's a lot of stress. Sure. And so this stress can be the result of a million different things. But things like extreme anxiety about something, extreme grief, extreme anger... Whatever the overwhelming emotion or emotions may be, it has the potential to bring about these kinds of dreams. I think pretty much everyone knows this by now. Dreams, especially disturbing ones, tend to pull from our literal lives and a great deal from our more unconscious lives as well. So, transpersonal psychology is a theoretical orientation that pulls a great deal from other psychological orientations and attempts to integrate them into a much more inclusive model. Is that sort of your understanding as well? Yes. Okay, good, good. So then <laughs> so then I'm making sense here. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, there is this idea among the transpersonalists that the pursuit of meaning is something that is hardwired into us as human beings. Some may even argue that it is meaning that really drives everything we do as human beings in some way, shape, or form. And I know there are other theories about what drives us, but for me, looking for meaning... And creating meaning is really what is fascinating about psychology. We're really the only species that we know of that needs meaning in life and has the ability to create it in the face of everything else we have to do for our survival. So for me, looking for or creating, however you want to look at it, meaning is inherent in the human condition. There simply is no way around it. Hence my drive to look for or assign meaning to this fascinating aspect of our psyche. Obviously, there are other theories about why we have dreams, like the one you talked about, but I refuse to believe that dreams are some kind of side effect of, you know, the more mundane business, so to speak, of the brain. 
Again, this gets back to the idea that chemicals floating around in my head don't necessarily translate to why I have an internal experience. And let's face it, dreams are one of the more interesting experiences we have. Dreams can be these awesome places where we defy the normal rules of society, even defy the normal rules of physics. They can be terrifying, erotic, serene, peaceful. And for a lot of people, they can yield precious bits of information about what's going on in our lives right now. See, this is the good part. This is what I want to hear. Okay. So hopefully I won't disappoint. No, you won't. The most obvious way that anyone who knows me would guess that I would go in is that dreams are a product of what Carl Jung called the unconscious mind. I admit that I am Jung at heart, so a lot of what I'm going to talk about comes from that theoretical orientation. I've worked a great deal with my own dreams from that orientation, and I've also worked with the dreams of others as well, using that same philosophical approach. Ultimately, the unconscious mind works kind of like this. So imagine an iceberg. The tip, of course, is what we see above the water, hence the expression, the tip of the iceberg. What remains under the water is the vast majority of the iceberg. And so, what we know consciously is kind of like that, the tip of the iceberg. The majority of what is happening in the psyche is happening in the unconscious mind. This is what lies under the water. An example of this is that one friend we all have that seems to make the same mistakes over and over again. You have that one friend, right, Dr. Jessica? I think everybody has that one friend, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, so do I. And if you don't have that friend, you may be the one I'm talking about. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Especially when it comes to dating issues. We see this a lot in the people we choose to date and couple with because this can be a very strong expression about what is going on in our unconscious psyche. Sometimes this can be made conscious, for sure, these patterns, but for most, being conscious of this kind of internal habitual pattern takes some serious inner work. So whenever you hear the statement, quote, they're not my type, or quote, they're my type, what we're usually, not always, but usually dealing with is some kind of unconscious process going on in the psyche. There are reasons for why we are attracted to the people we are, but this is usually something that not a lot of people spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out. We just like what we like and we go from there, even if it ends in disaster sometimes. But there are usually reasons why we like the things we do, including people. Jung believed that these reasons lie in the unconscious mind. This is the part of the psyche that takes a backseat to whatever is happening consciously. A lot of times we get messages from the unconscious through our bodies. Have you ever had an experience where your gut was giving you a very strong message while your brain was trying to tell you something different? Oh, yes. Okay, I think we all have had that. Sure. So an example of this might be learning to drive in the United States. We get so good at driving that we can do it almost unconsciously. You know, we can carry on a conversation while we're driving, listen to music, think about what we're going to have for dinner that night, you know, all while driving home. A lot of people think they can text and drive, especially in this city, but I think that's a step too far. Yeah, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, but that's the whole point, right? People think that they can do that. They can text while they're driving because driving has become an unconscious part of our daily lives. We don't really think about it. Right, I I would call that it become, I would say that that becomes automatic. Automatic. Okay, good. Well, we learn to drive in the United States. Okay, and suddenly we're forced to drive in the UK, where everything is now backwards. I mean, I'm sure they'd say we're backwards, but you know what I mean. Right. 
So now we have this cognitive dissonance, so to speak, between what our conscious mind is telling us, which is that we have to drive on the left side of the road now, versus what our body is telling us, which is everything we're doing feels wrong. This is what it's like whenever we try to change a habitual habit that's deeply ingrained in us. And this is why it can be so difficult to do. It just doesn't feel right, even though in our conscious brain, we know it is. So often we choose our behaviors by the way they feel rather than what is rational and evidence-based. That's just human behavior. This is why we make so many irrational decisions when we're in an emotional state. The problem is when we aren't fully aware of our emotions and try to make decisions. This is where the unconscious mind can really affect a great deal of influence on us without us really knowing it. A lot of time we deny how we are feeling and thereby do not acknowledge that we are being affected in this way. And then we go on to make decisions that are not always the best for us. So it is commonly believed that dreams can be one of the most powerful voices of the unconscious mind. Just like your gut feeling or other forms of body feedback, dreams can be a language all their own that can give you information from the part of the psyche that we are really not aware of in our day-to-day -day lives. The problem is that many people don't feel that they can speak this language or always understand what their dreams and by extension unconscious minds are trying to tell them. So remember how I said the unconscious mind is the part of the iceberg under the water? Yeah. So that's because there is so much going on down there. Jung believed that the majority of information we contain as human beings resides in a mostly unconscious state. So think about it. Have you ever heard the saying, the body remembers? Yeah, especially uh, when we talk about trauma. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, like in the PTSD sense. Sure. This is alluding to this phenomena. The body can remember things that the conscious mind cannot or does not. And it will bring things up in some of the strangest ways, things that we may have consciously forgotten about. So a little while ago, just earlier this week, I, I posted a video of a friend of mine named Richard Torres who did a meditation where he explains a visceral reaction he had to one of the inmates that he was working with when he was a chaplain in the Oregon prison system. It took him some time, but after a while, his conscious mind was able to figure out that his visceral reaction was because his unconscious mind recognized the inmate's gait as being like someone he had had a bad experience with when he was a child. Wow, that is fascinating. Right. So this is a yeah. good example of his body remembering something and then it triggering something else, an emotional response. So because it is in this unconscious part of our minds, when it does reach out, it reaches out to our conscious minds using the language of symbols. In other words, it would be helpful, I think, you know, if our wise unconscious minds would just tell us what it is we needed to do or what it wanted to say to us, right? Yeah, but then you and I wouldn't have jobs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Neither would Freud or Jung or... Yeah. But it generally does not work like that. So instead, the unconscious will use a number of ways to communicate information to us that are generally indirect in nature. So take, for instance, when we are feeling tense and say our shoulders tighten up and it gives us a tension headache. Oh, like... Every day for like the past month? Month. Okay, yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. So probably everyone out there has experienced something akin to this. This could be the body's way of letting you know that you need to slow down, you need to engage in more self-care, that kind of thing. Maybe something has been floating around in your unconscious mind that has been secretly bothering you, but perhaps you've been denying. I brought this up in reference to an article I read a number of years ago uh, in an episode we did 
I think in the first season. Uh, do you remember when I talked about the guy who had contracted herpes? Yeah, yeah, and and he would get flare-ups when he was going through something emotional. Right, and how his outbreaks would alert him to times when he was going through something emotionally that he was not always ready to consciously admit to himself. So his body was giving him feedback in real time about what his unconscious mind knew, but maybe his conscious mind was denying. Interesting. So dreams can work in much the same way. The images we see in dreams can be symbolic of a number of things that are going on in a person's life. Many times the symbols and imagery in dreams are there to bring attention to something that the conscious mind would rather avoid. Let's say you have some intense feelings of grief about losing someone close to you. There's probably a lot of that going around right now. Sure. But for whatever reason, the day-to-day has kept you from being open and honest about these feelings. I mean, we have to work. We have to take care of kids. We have to make sure everyone is fed, etc. So what we do to get by is we compartmentalize these feelings. That means sort of putting them away for the time being with the intention, usually, that we will process these feelings at some point in the future. Often, however, we forget that we put those feelings away and they become part of our unconscious mind or what Rich brought up the other day in his video, what we like to call the shadow, which is another term for the unconscious mind. But these feelings that we have compartmentalized don't really go away. They slip into the unconscious part of our minds, our shadow side, and they fester. Jung believed that in order to fully individuate as human beings, that is, become whole human beings, that we needed to integrate this part of ourselves. This is what can make paying attention to our dreams so important. Information is being relayed to us that is relevant to our conscious lives if we are paying attention. I know that I have been given information about how to solve problems, how to set goals and reach them, make decisions, or finally be honest about my feelings, all by paying attention to what my dreams are telling me. And you know that's interesting because there have been times where I've been mulling over a problem or an issue in my waking hours, right? right? And I just can't figure it out. And then I sleep on it and I wake up in the morning and it's like, oh, now I know what I need to do. I know how to fix this. I know how to move forward. And so I can kind of relate to that. That's a great saying, you know, sort of sleep on it or sit with it. Let it rest for a little bit. Let the unconscious mind do its thing Yeah. while you play out the rest of your life for the day or whatever, right? And the unconscious mind is moving as it is when we're sleeping, right? And so what happens is, is that through the dream, it gives you a series of symbols or it gives you some sort of emotional hint on which way you should be going. So to me, nightmares are just a much more intense version of this. This is the unconscious mind screaming, not talking, but screaming something at us and demanding that we take notice. One of the things that I've done with the men that I've worked with is really pay attention to reoccurring nightmares. This is the unconscious mind demanding over and over again that the dreamer pay attention. It is a demand by the shadow to process some kind of unresolved issue in the dreamer's life. This is why we can see nightmares signaling things like unresolved trauma or other intense emotions. Oftentimes the dreamer needs to process these feelings and issues before there is a resolution to the nightmare. Or sometimes we can go about it in the opposite direction. Resolution can take place in the nightmare if the dreamer can become lucid or conscious when it's happening. 
So lucid dreaming is where people become aware that they're asleep and dreaming in the middle of the dream, right? Correct. Right. That is that is the, the general definition of a lucid dream. You become lucid in the middle of the dream. And that's a really cool experience to have when you do realize, especially in the middle of a nightmare, when you realize that you have control. Yeah, absolutely. It can be very cool because, again, you can start breaking all kinds of rules. Right. You can, you know, defy physics and rules of nature in order to manifest things in the dream that you really would like to happen. So Jung found that throughout the numerous cultures in the world, there are certain symbols that always seem to be powerful when they come up. These symbols are so powerful and universal, in fact, that we would say that they're archetypal. And this is a very short explanation of what can make something an archetype. That it's such a common symbol in our collective psyche that it becomes ubiquitous to the human experience. Of course, the most instantly recognizable example of this is the hero's journey. We see this in all kinds of famous storylines from Star Wars to Harry Potter to Lord of the Rings. This is such an essential part of our collective human experience that we often will connect with the idea of it without fully realizing why. So J.K. Rowling is a genius, all because she was able to tell an archetypal and classic story in such a fresh and unexpected way. But the root of the story was all archetype. Yeah, I could see that. The reason why we all seem to pick up on stories like these across cultures rests in something Jung called the collective unconscious. This is the part of the unconscious mind that Jung believed was passed down to us through our ancestors and that we shared with everyone on some level who was also human. This is something that can truly link all human beings into a kind of universal experience. This is why children can dream of powerful symbols, things that they have never seen in real life or understand conceptually, but that they see in their dreams. This is the unconscious knowledge that has been passed down to them through the multitudes of ancestors who have come before them, all adding to this amazing amount of information housed in the collective unconscious. Okay, so I know I've talked a lot about what nightmares and in a more general sense dreams are. So the question that is usually on everyone's mind is what do they mean? I won't go into too much detail about specific symbols and all that. I've done a good deal of dream interpretation, but I'll be the first to admit that I'm not truly an expert on the subject. I will say that if you are serious about working with your dreams, that you should consult someone who's been doing it for a while and has specific knowledge of how to get to the importance of your dream symbols as they relate to your life. One of the biggest mistakes that I see when people are trying to interpret dreams or nightmares is that they tend to be very literal when looking for a meaning. So let's say, you know, they see a cat in a dream mm -hmm. and they automatically think uh, the dream is referencing cats. Well, sure. Sure. I need to adopt a cat or, you know, whatever the symbol may be. It actually takes some time and skill to tease through what the real association of the symbol is in reference to the dreamer's actual life. This can take a quite a bit of context and background to establish and is usually done with a therapist of some kind. While some symbols can be universal, how they relate to your life can be quite specific and personalized. So you always see these things online. There used to be books like this in the bookstore and they were all about dream interpretation. So you, you know, you have a dream about a snake and you type in what does a dream about a snake mean and it spits something out right and so that's what you're really cautioning people against right I, I would say take things like that with a grain of salt yeah because again a, a snake it is a it is a very powerful universal symbol 
but how it is contextualized in your life can be quite specific. Like, okay, so would you like to talk a little bit about your nightmare? Yeah. So the the dream, the nightmare that I read during the intro was actually a nightmare that I had. And I had it when I was a child, believe it or not. But it was such a vivid and terrifying nightmare that it has stuck with me my entire life since that time. And in fact, after that nightmare, I developed a very irrational but real phobia of statues. And I know that that's strange and people are like, how can you be afraid of statues? But but I really do think that it started with this dream because it was so intense. It was so real. So I think that we could, you and I could talk about that nightmare, that dream, because again, I have an understanding of what is going on in your life now. I, I can contextualize it to your life. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, do you think that you can do that even though I was a child at the time? Well, I think that's what makes the dream so interesting. Okay. You know, and knowing you the way that I do, knowing your sort of orientation to psychology, Mm -hmm. philosophical orientation towards the practice of psychology. As a kid, we are often trying to sort that out. How old would you say that you were? Oh, gosh. Um, may, maybe 10, 10 to 12 years old. Okay. So Jung believed that there's a lot going on in terms of how we sort of see the world from both feminine and masculine viewpoints. There's a lot of symbology in your dream that alludes to that sort of interaction between these two different viewpoints, mm-hmm. particularly as it relates to how you would choose to approach psychology, which is a very logos-based, which is often considered a masculine form of consciousness. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the ocean and water in general, that is a very powerful universal symbol, which is actually usually representative of a very unconscious part of the mind. You think about, especially the ocean, mm-hmm. right? it's, it, as you go further and further down, it's dark and it's deep and it's mysterious, but it's also intriguing. There's something that draws us to it. Well, because water is what keeps us alive. Oh, it, it, it's an amazing right? thing. Yeah. Water is one of those elements that is amazing in, in its versatility. It can be uh, the giver of life. It can also be incredibly terrifying. Sure. Right. When, you know, in the form of a tsunami or, you know, uh, an an intense thunderstorm or something like that. So knowing you and knowing this dream, right, you are clinging to this statue. This statue is representative of a very masculine form of consciousness, a very logos form of consciousness. It represents sort of the pride of the Rhodian people, but it's also the god of the sun. Yes. Okay. Very masculine. Everything that is rational, everything that is warlike. As a matter of fact, I think that the Colossus of Rhodes was built to honor battles that they had fought and won. Oh, okay. That's why he stood as the sentinel over the harbor. And it was sort of to let people know, hey, we are a strong people. To see that crumble before you as you are being drugged into this unconsciousness, as you're being drugged into the ocean, I think, really hints at this sort of representation about what was going on in your mind, your childlike psyche at the time, is you were sort of learning, coming into how to think rationally and leaving this sort of magical type childlike thinking behind. Okay. So 
Jung believed that there is often a push and pull between the masculine and the feminine as it comes to consciousness. And your dream sounds like it was very well represented, this sort of potential conflict that could happen between these two parts. Particularly if you're going to study as a woman, going to study something that is considered a science. Right. And I think, you know, historically more so, it was a male-dominated field. I don't think that that's the case by any means anymore. But, you know, certainly as a young woman learning about psychology, who was I reading? You know, I was reading Freud and Jung and, you know, um, Beck and, and Ellis and all of these men who had pioneered the field. And there weren't a lot of women that we were reading about in the history of psychology. So, you know, I think that that's an interesting interpretation. And the other piece that I was thinking about, so at the time that I had this dream, I had no idea what the Colossus of Rhodes was. I remember that around the time that I had this dream, my parents had bought a used set of encyclopedias. And for those of you who don't know, the encyclopedia was Google before there was Google because <laughs> we didn't have the internet way back then. And I would just sit and I would spend hours just looking through the encyclopedia um, because I'm an introvert and that's what I love to do as a child. And I, as I was flipping through, I came across the section on the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there was a depiction of the Colossus of Rhodes in there. And I... I basically threw the book down because the picture in the encyclopedia was the same as what I had seen in my dream. And my mom was like, what, you know, what's going on there? And I said, you know, I dreamt of this and I never knew about it before. And so when you were talking about this collective unconscious and these symbols that children will dream about that they have really no context for, that really spoke to me. And I don't know, I, I kind of wonder if that's what was going on. I mean, perhaps I had been exposed to it in some other venue, something that I wasn't consciously aware of, and it kind of made its way into my dream in that manner. But I wonder if, if it was also kind of a symbol from that collective unconscious. I absolutely believe it was, and I think Jung would say the same thing, that this is something that was handed down to you through your ancestors as part of the collective unconscious. Well, and I have to say, so you and I, we visited Greece back in 2016. Right. And one of the places that we went was to Rhodes, and we got to see the port where um, the Colossus once stood. And because I, I had this dream and I've carried it with me my entire life, that was such a powerful experience just to actually be there and to see it. So it was kind of kind of an interesting turn of events to, to actually be in that place at some point in my life. I think it's an interesting dream or nightmare, however you want to describe it. But again, knowing what I know about you, there is this push and pull and this desire to want to cling to this monument to rational thinking, particularly in the field that you're in. But at the same time, this dream sort of represents your fear of being drugged into this more very mysterious, deeper, unconscious part of your psyche, which is maybe why you enjoy studying dark psychology so much. Maybe. Maybe that's why I like working with, you know, offenders. I'm working in prison and teaching students about crime and the psychology of violence. You know, I, I think that it's possible. 
So we would love to hear from some of our listeners about the nightmares that you have. A few of our friends and people on social media have kind of reached out and said that they've had some very strange and and disturbing dreams during the pandemic. Um, So we would love to hear about those. And we'd love to hear, do you guys think that your dreams mean something or are they just random bits of information that our brains piece together? So you can share these with us and with each other if you're so inclined on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also send us an email from there as well. And you can find us at Psychology After Dark on both Facebook and Instagram. Um, We really do love hearing from you all. I know that sometimes it takes us a a few days to get back to your emails, but um, please keep them coming. We, We really enjoy engaging with you guys through that way. And we appreciate you all listening and sharing our podcast with others. So thank you so much for that. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Just real quick, another shout out to everybody out there who is doing something to help, no matter how small it is, during these very trying times. And we're here and we hear you and we see you and we thank you. Yes, thank you. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo. <laughs>